We'll look at Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3, 11 through 26. We're continuing on where we left off last week after the man who was lame from birth was healed and then was leaping and praising God. Verse 11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect help in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, thus He fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I want to pray that You would Send Your Spirit in a mighty way this morning to understand Your Word, to see the implications of Your Word. Father, they are great and they are also eternal. So, Father, speak to us. Build us up. May our lives be transformed because of Your Word. And we ask these things confidently in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've titled this message Carpe Diem, and even if you never took Latin in school, you may know that Carpe Diem means, anybody? Seize the day, that's right. Basically, it means take advantage, exploit to the fullest any opportunity that confronts you. Um, It's interesting that originally this phrase came from a poem by Horace, and the phrase seize the day is also connected with this that follows it putting as little trust as possible 
in the future. The belief is that we've got to take advantage of what comes before us because we don't know about the future. That's uncertain. So basically, it's eat, drink, be merry because we don't know what will happen tomorrow. Now, when I talk about seizing the day, I'm using the phrase in the exact opposite way. I am saying seize the day because we are quite confident of the future. And we should seize the day. We should seize the opportunities that God presents before us because we know what the future holds. We know that there is a judgment to come and that a day is coming when we will stand before God. Martin Luther said that we should live every day in light of that day. And of course, that day refers to the judgment to come. As Christians, we live in light of the end. We live in light of eternity. And that perspective, that eternal perspective, uh, should influence and transform everything that we do. It should help us to see the opportunities before us in a very different light. Now, in this regard, Peter is an excellent example. Peter lives with an eternal perspective. And Peter is going to seize the opportunity that is before him on this occasion. As we saw last week, uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And there was a man by the gate, beautiful, who had been lame from birth. And we learned that he had been lame from birth. And now he was over 40 years old. And he was at this temple every single day, which means all the people knew who this man was because they walked by him all the time. Peter and John didn't have any gold. They had something better than gold. They had the name of Jesus Christ. And in that name, Peter said to this lame man, rise and walk. And to the astonishment of the lame man, as well as the people who were watching, he rose from his feet. He began jumping up and down and praising God because he could not believe that what had happened to him. All the people watching this knew who this man was. And as I said, this was not a setup. This was not a stage healing. This was the real thing. And they knew it was a real thing because they knew who this man was. They had recognized him, many of them, for decades. Well, this week we pick up the story. Verse 11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Astounded. Now, several words strike me here. First of all, the people are astounded. We saw that last week. And why wouldn't you be astounded? It's not every day that a lame man is leaping and jumping up and down. Also notice that this lame man, or I should say this formerly lame man, is clinging or holding on to Peter and John. Wouldn't you do that? I think, I think the idea is, I, I'm not letting you guys go. <laughs> uh, anyone that can bring healing into my life is worth listening to. So they are clinging to Him. Another word that I find fascinating is that it says, and all the people ran together. It doesn't just say the people gathered together or it doesn't doesn't just say the people approached James or excuse me, uh, Peter and John. It says the people ran. Uh, they could not wait to get to Peter and John. And very quickly, 
a crowd accumulated and Peter's looking around and he realizes that there is a crowd and he also realizes what a great opportunity to share the Gospel. And he does indeed seize the opportunity. And he seizes the opportunity to do four things. First of all, he seizes the opportunity to exalt Jesus Christ and then to confront guilty sinners and then to offer the remedy and then to highlight the blessings that come. So let's look at each one of those. First of all, Peter exalts Jesus Christ. Verse 12 begins, And when Peter saw it, that is referring to all the people running as fast as they could, gathering together, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made Him walk. Now, if you're going to exalt Jesus Christ, sometimes the very first thing you have to do is downplay yourself. Peter knows all the people are looking at him and John and they're thinking, whoa, who are these men? What power they have or what piety or what godliness they may have. Perhaps they're one of the gods. And we'll see that a little later in Acts. And right away, Peter has to say, no, 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 no. No, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking we're powerful or we're really something. I need to let you know right up front, we're nothing. We're not, don't look at us as though we're the direct cause of this man walking. We're not. And this is very important. Uh, many people will look at us as Christians and they might look at our marriages or our family or, or our businesses, whatnot, and they may think we're something. And perhaps before we exalt Jesus Christ, the first thing we have to say is, it's not because of me. It's not because of me. Um, I can remember many years ago, uh, by the grace of God, I was delivered from drugs. And I really mean that. It really was the grace of God. I can still remember uh, pray my mother's basement. And I said, God, I can't do it. I, I cannot quit doing drugs without your help. And that night, God did something. He took it away. Um, and by His grace, I'm here 25 plus years later, um, still set free. And I wish God would do that for everything I pray. Um, he doesn't. So I don't, I don't want to give that impression. Some of you maybe have prayed. I haven't been delivered. Sometimes God does. Sometimes He doesn't. But it really was the grace of God, and I knew it because I had tried again and again and again and I, I couldn't escape what had a stranglehold on me. Uh, well, there were some uh, uh, Northwestern University students uh, working where I was back in seminary at a, at a painting company and one of the girls um, that was hired was struggling with partying and drugs and, and I had just mentioned that God had helped me with that. Uh, and she said, well, you just got your life together. You grew up and you got your life together. And just as clear as day, it was like God said to me. It wasn't an audible voice, but it was very clear. It was, don't you dare take credit for what I did in your life. And I said, you know what? I, I didn't get my act together. I tried to get my act together. I couldn't get my act together on my own until I cried out to God and He delivered me. So don't look at me 
Like, I got my act together. I didn't. This really was the grace of God. And, and sometimes you have to do that. You have to intentionally deflect it away from yourself and let other people know what you already know. This isn't because I'm a wonderful guy or I'm a wonderful girl. Uh, so that's the first thing Peter does. Don't be looking at us. And then in verse 13, he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers. And that, that's very important because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So he's making it very clear. Your God, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, this God that we all hold in common, glorified His servant, Jesus. Yahweh has done this, and He has done this by glorifying His servant, Jesus. In 15, Paul says, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then in 16, he says, And His name. Here he's going to make it very clear. It's His name. The name of Jesus Christ by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus Christ has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that this man stands before you healed. This is what's bringing about this healing. And a little later, Peter is going to say that again. Look at Acts 4, verse 8 and following. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by Him, this man is standing before you well. So Peter is making it very clear. This is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is responsible for this healing that you're seeing. So that's the first thing he does. He exalts Jesus Christ. And then he confronts these guilty sinners. Back up to verse 13 after he talks about Jesus Christ being glorified, he says, "...whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life." I love that paradox there. You killed the author of life. But notice how many times he basically points the finger and he says, you, you, you. You delivered him. You denied him. You killed him. Points the finger right at them. And then I think he gets a little dig in here. He says, you denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Pilate was going to let him go because Pilate couldn't find anything that he was guilty for. Pilate was going to let him go. But you insisted on Pilate having him crucified. And then noticed, you denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. Pilate said, well, let me release someone. Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And you said, give us Barabbas. We'd rather have 
a murderer than Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. So Peter makes it very clear in his second sermon, just like he did in his first sermon, that they are responsible for the death of Christ. They killed the author of life. He's making it very clear that they are guilty. Now, in verse 17, Peter seems to be letting up just a little bit. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So he comes down on them very hard. He brings the hammer down. He says, you killed the author of life. He says, but I know you acted in ignorance. You really didn't understand what you were doing just like the rulers didn't understand what they were doing. Verse 18, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. In other words, what Peter is saying, you did it in ignorance, but really you should have understood what was going to happen. Because the Scriptures were very clear about the suffering that God would go through. So they acted in ignorance, but they really should not have been ignorant. Now, that's important because many people think that they will be set free on the day of judgment because of ignorance. I just didn't know. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. Uh, He wrote the book called The God Delusion. And he's written many other blasphemous and terrible books. Let's be blunt. Um, Just recently, though, I found this surprising. Uh, Richard Dawkins has shifted from being an atheist to an agnostic. Uh, He has admitted that he cannot be absolutely certain that there is no God. So, in other words, he basically confessed that he is agnostic. Uh, Now, Dawkins and others have been asked this question. I, I find this interesting. If there is a God, Let's just say, hypothetically, there is a God and you stand before this God on the day of judgment. What are you going to say in your defense? And again and again and again, the answer I've heard is, why didn't you provide more evidence? In other words, they're going to say, I was ignorant, but it's your fault. Um, It's your fault that I was an ignoramus, um, which is Latin for agnostic. It really is. So Dawkins basically is admitting in this regard, he's an ignoramus. Uh, We use that negatively. Uh, But here's what's interesting. People really do think that it's an excuse, but it's not an excuse. In Romans 1.20, Paul makes it very clear that everybody knows there's a God. He writes, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. They will be without excuse. If they didn't turn to God, if they didn't honor God or give thanks to Him, as Paul says right after that, they are without excuse. They know there's a God. Creation screams that there is a great and glorious God. The claim of ignorance will not work. And in Romans 1.32, Paul ends this section by saying, Though they know God's decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They not only know that there is a God, but they also know God's decrees. God has written it on their heart. Their conscience bears witness against it. They know they're sinning against God. They know they deserve to die. They suppress that truth, but they know it. They know that's what they deserve. Now, Paul, or excuse me, Peter in Acts 3 is coming right after these Jews. He's saying, You're guilty. I know you acted in ignorance, but that's not really an excuse to get you off the hook because the Scriptures, your Scriptures were very clear about what was going to happen to the Christ, so you should have known this. Now here, right after he brings about conviction, he offers the remedy. He offers the remedy. And we've seen this before, and we can basically basically describe the remedy in one word, and it comes in verse 19. Repent. We saw that before. The basic message of John the Baptist was repent. Jesus, beginning His first sermon right after John the Baptist was killed, said repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, repent. And in his second sermon right here, he says repent. Anybody detecting a common theme? (laughs) Uh, Repent. That's what God requires. When you sin, He calls upon you to repent. And I gave you the example of the Sunday school class where a, a class of children was asked, children, what does it mean to repent? And one little boy raised his hand and he said, it means being sorry for my sin. Another girl raised her hand and then she said, it's being sorry enough to quit. That's a very good definition. And here's the children's catechism questions that we'll be getting to in a few weeks. Children's catechism number 55. Who will be saved? Answer, only those who repent of sin, believe in God, and lead holy lives. Now, let me explain this answer right here so you don't get the wrong impression. Uh, We are not saved by leading good lives. This is what the answer means. When we genuinely put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will sin. Or, excuse me, we will turn away from our sin which is repentance, and we will lead godly lives. So, in other words, repentance and godly living testifies that we really have believed in Christ. Because if we really have put our faith in Jesus Christ, our lives will be changed. And then question 56. What is it to repent? To be sorry for sin and to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. And I think that is a great definition. It is being sorry for sin, but not just being sorry for sin, actually hating sin and hating it enough to forsake it. And not just because I'm ashamed of my sin and how it makes me look, but because it's displeasing to God. That's the key phrase right there. Repentance takes place because I've sinned against God. Forget what everybody else thinks of what I've done. What does God think of what I, I just believe God with my sin? How can I do that to my heavenly Father? And because I just please God, 
I'm going to ask for forgiveness and I'm going to turn away from this sin because I want to honor God. I want to please God. That's genuine repentance. And we need to remember that God is looking for obedience. Drop down to verse 22 in Acts 3. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That's from Deuteronomy 18. And the prophet that Moses was referring to was Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet. But then look at verse 23. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Is that not strong? Moses says, God's going to raise up a prophet like me from among your own people. And he does. He raises up Jesus Christ, the prophet. And he says, if you don't listen to him, you will be destroyed from the people of God. You will be cut off from God and His people forever. Some of you may recall that when Jesus was on earth, He took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. It's now known as the Mount of Transfiguration. uh, Because there on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Uh, Some believe that literally beams of light shot forth from His face like the sun because He was being glorified. And His uh, clothes were all white, whiter than any white that they had ever seen in their life. And then a voice came from heaven. And this is what we read in Matthew 17.5. A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the voice from heaven said, Listen to Him. Isn't that interesting? God speaks from heaven. He says, this is My Son. I am well pleased with My Son. Listen to Him. Do what He tells you to do. God is looking for obedience. He wants us to hear. He wants us to obey. And often that means repent. Turning away from our sin. Now, Peter's not done. He has one more point. And in this point, Peter highlights the blessings. Verse 19, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. First thing he lets them know, if you repent, God will forgive you. He will blot out that sin. He will take that divine racer and He will just cross it all off. He'll blot it out and you will be forgiven. And he goes on and he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He will restore you. And I often think of Psalm 51. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. David's sin, he's feeling the weight of that sin. All his joy is taken away and he confesses his sin. He repents and he says, God, bring back the joy. And God does. God brings back the joy. He refreshes him and He restores him. And this is what God wants to do. Peter tells them, God wants to bless His people. God does. God wants to bless each one of us in this room. That is the heart of God. It really is. I don't think we really understand that. I really don't. This is why we look for satisfaction in so many other places because we think I have to be fulfilled there because we don't think God would fulfill us. That God would place His hand of blessing upon us. God loves to bless 
His people. Look at verse 25. You are all sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Two questions for you. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Who is the offspring? Who is the offspring? No. Got to be precise here. It's very important. Who's the offspring? Singular. And in your offspring. It's not. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And in your offspring, is it singular or plural? Singular. Is that important? Was to Paul. Galatians 3.16 Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. That's what we just read, right? Promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. And then what does he go on and say? It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promises, the blessings, come through Christ. Not the Jewish people, not the Jewish nation, Jesus Christ. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The Jews are the chosen people in the sense that they were chosen to be the nation from which would come Jesus Christ. Now, let me also ask you this question. So, the blessings come through Jesus Christ and the promise made to Abraham was that how many people would be blessed? And let me just give you a hint. The answer is not up here. It's right down here. Take your index finger. If you could go right here. Let me help you out here, okay? And in your offspring, how many people shall be blessed? All the families. All the families. You know what? I've talked to many Christians about this. Most Christians do not believe this. They think I am just way too radical to actually believe this. This promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 22:18. He promised him that in his offspring, Jesus Christ, all the families, every single family on the face of the earth would be blessed. What, what does that tell you about God's heart to bless? Absolutely huge. And you know what it says to me? God has only begun blessing His people. The blessing of the Gospel, the blessing of the Kingdom has only begun to go forth into all the world. We have a long ways to go. See how radical this is? I can see it on your faces. Some of you are saying, wow, I've I got to think about this. But I want you to think about it. Because I'm telling you, this is the heart of God. And I want you to understand, this is the heart of God to bless all the families. Of the earth. That's the promise He made to Abraham. I'm going to bless all the families on the face of the earth. That tells us that the Gospel is going to go forth. And that our prayer and the Lord's prayer will be answered. That His kingdom will come and that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The nations will bow at the feet of Jesus. His blessing will go forth. That's what God wants to do. That's God's heart. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up His servant, 
sent him to you first to bless you. He sent him to you first, the Jews first. Remember what Paul said? The gospel goes forth first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That's what he means here. The gospel goes to you, Jewish people first, and then it's going to go to the Gentiles, and then it's going to go to all the earth. Remember our outline in the book of Acts? The gospel begins in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But it begins in Jerusalem with the, the Jewish people first, and then it goes out. But notice, God raised up His servant and sent him to you first. For what purpose? Why did God do this? To bless you. To bless you. And how does He do that? By turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's how God blesses us. God comes into our lives and He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to turn you away from your wickedness. And God came to me and He said, Wayne, I'm going to take you away from that wicked addiction in your life. And I'm going to bless you by turning you away from your sin in your life. That's how God blesses us. And I think most of us, when we're honest, we realize that much of the misery in our life is because of our own sin. Yes, things happen to us that are outside of ourselves that we, that we can't control, but much of the misery in our own lives is because of our own sin. God created Adam and Eve, as the Catechism says, holy and happy. But Adam sinned and brought on all his posterity, all mankind, including us, sin and misery. But He sends Jesus Christ to die for our sin and He raises Him up so that we can be blessed by turning us away from our sin so that we can come back to our original state of being holy and happy. That's how God blesses us. The joy of the Christian life comes in walking in paths of righteousness. And there's basically two responses to a message like this. And Peter had those responses. We'll look at them more next week, but let me just point them out here in, close, in closing. Acts 2.4 Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's the first response. Annoyance. You ever receive that response? Telling people about Jesus? And you can just see it all over their face. They are just annoyed that you would have the audacity to talk about Jesus. That you would have the audacity to call them sinners. That you would have the audacity to tell them that they need to turn from their sin and ask God for forgiveness. People are annoyed. People were annoyed at Peter. Which is why it takes great courage to tell people this. Because we know people are going to be annoyed at the very least, right? <laughs> Sometimes we know it starts with annoyance and then it goes up to anger if we don't let up. People don't respond well. But we have to tell people why. Because verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Some were annoyed, but some believed. They heard the message, they repented of their sin, they turned away, and they were added overall to the body of Christ. This is the message of blessing. It's a hard message to hear at first but it is a great message. It is a glorious message. God longs to bless us. And if we will hear Him, we will listen to Him. If God said from heaven, if we will listen to Him, if, he will, if we will walk in His ways, He will bless us. And, and do we stray from time to time? We all do. 
This is a church of sinners. We all walk as we should walk and then we get off here or we get off there and God calls us to come back. And He says, repent, come back so that I can bless you once again. And aren't you glad we have a gracious God and a forgiving God and a God who loves to bless rebellious sinners like us? I am. I know most of you are too. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the courage of Peter. Thank You for his example. Father, may we seize the opportunities that You place before us. Father, may we exalt Jesus Christ. May we have boldness to tell others that they are sinners. But there is a remedy and there is a blessing to come. And Father, we also not only give this message, but we also need to hear this message. Because the Christian life is one of repentance. It's not a one-time deal. It's something we do on a regular basis. So Father, thank You for Your graciousness even in calling us back to Yourself calling us to repentance because You want to bless us. Mm -hmm. Father, thank You for the blessing that is available when we turn to You. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see Your heart and Your longing to bless Your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.